The reading is from Genesis chapter 3, um, at verse 20, we're starting. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and to take also from the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Good morning, everyone. I, was, uh, I had cause to think back this week on uh, something that took place in the, uh, the late 1970s when I was in, um, early on in primary school. And Dave's laughing already. You don't even know what the illustration is. Um, and uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's sadness to this story, Dave. You shouldn't be laughing, really. Um, and it, I, some of you in the room, not many of you, will be old enough possibly to remember something called stickle bricks. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. Great, thank you. Some of the people approaching middle age, you know what I mean by stickle bricks. Before, you had, before everybody was playing with Lego, you stuck these things together and made things out of them. And I love playing with these in class. I love playing with them in class so much that I decided on this one day I was going to take a few of them, keep a few of them. So yes, your pastor is a thief. Um, and I, I stuck these things in my pocket, and I don't remember all the details except that the dinner lady, one of the dinner ladies, twigged what I'd done, told my teacher. The teacher um, got hold of me, took the stickle bricks off me, and told me off. Um, now, I'm smiling as I'm saying it. Dave was laughing before I even started, probably. And some of you laughed when I said about stealing the stickle bricks. But do you know what? The, um, when the teacher found out, and then afterwards my mother found out, um, and I know my mother's forgiven me since, though I can't speak for the teacher, that there was this sense of, of shame that just stuck and wouldn't go away. And you might be smiling and thinking, it's really not a big deal stealing a stickle brick. And no, it's not compared to other things. But that sense of shame was very real. I also remember occasions growing up when I, I lied to my parents. Some of the times I got away with it, and a few occasions I didn't get away with it. I remember the look on their faces. They were probably trying really hard not to look hurt and disappointed, but they looked hurt, they looked disappointed. And that sense of being ashamed of what I'd done stuck with me. Shame sticks, doesn't it? Shame is a real thing. And of course, I'm sure going through your minds, are examples of shame, either in your life or the lives of others, that seem much, uh, much worse, more horrendous than those examples of shame I've just given you. There are some in my life that I'm not going to tell you about this morning, but shame is a real thing. And the thing is, the book of Genesis explains my shame and explains your shame too. This book, this passage, Steph alluded to this as he was leading us, explains that the way that the world is. It just explains everything. It explains the fact that this is a world of, of beauty and wonder and amazement because it's been created by a good and a beautiful God. But it also explains the brokenness and the pain and the strife and the toil and the sense of distance from God that we as human beings sometimes feel. And that is very real. This, this book explains pretty much everything about our world. And it also explains shame. We're going to look at two things this morning. The reality of shame, our shame, and God's solution for it. That's essentially what we're going to do from this passage. Our shame and God's solution to it. So 
Is it just me or have you experienced shame as well? I'm betting you have to some degree. If you haven't experienced shame at all, then either you're not living or you haven't lived long enough. Maybe you're suffering with the experience of shame right now. You're aware of something in your life, in your past or your present, that's a source of feeling ashamed. Maybe you've become aware that others know about this thing and that that just deepens the shame. Maybe it's that thing that you did that you can't undo that comes back to you in the small hours sometimes and you wish you could go back and undo it, but you can't. Maybe it is that look from your parent, maybe from years ago, from someone else, that look of hurt or that horrible look of disappointment on someone's face as they look at you, even, even when it's someone who loves you. Maybe you've, something else in your life has just caused in the past and maybe in your present that sense of just coming up short. And it's horrible, isn't it? Shame has, shame has been described as embarrassment. One definition I saw is shame has been embarrassed. I just don't think that's strong enough. You know, embarrassment is, oh, I can't believe I did that again. How embarrassing. And then I've forgotten about it tomorrow. Shame is embarrassment on steroids. Shame is embarrassment that sticks and penetrates and sinks in and just won't go away. Shame is feeling broken, unworthy, dirty, dishonored, under judgment. Shame basically thinks, and we see this in the passage here this morning, don't look at me. Someone looks at you, you think, don't, please don't look, and don't look too close. This passage has something profound to say about shame in that sense. Did you notice when we were back in chapter 2, seems like ages ago now, there was this phrase that maybe didn't make a lot of sense at the time, chapter 2, verse 25. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Why is that there? Well, it's there because of chapter 3, because when chapter 3 comes, and Tom unpacked this for us recently. And Adam and Eve rebel against God. They want to be gods themselves. They want to have this knowledge and rule their own lives. They do that. They rebel against God. They realize what they've done. They have sinned and they brought the whole human race into sin. And then at that point, they're ashamed. They can't bear for, they can't bear for the other to look at them. They can't, certainly can't bear for God to look at them, which is why they hide. Spiritual fools that they are, just like us, they think some trees can hide them from the gaze of God as he comes walking through the garden like he always does in the cool of the day. And this time they don't want God to look at them because of what they've done. They have sinned against God. And whereas previously they felt nothing coming between them and God, them and each other, there was total openness, confidence, trust and honor. Now it's changed and that horrible and grateful self deifying cosmic treason against their good creator has brought them into this guilty state where they are condemned before God and now they hide from each other with a pitiful fig leaves that Tom mentioned and then hide in the trees as if the trees can hide them. The shame they didn't feel in chapter 2 they now feel and it is awful. The death that God warned them of has come. It's come in a spiritual sense and it will come in a physical sense one day. They know this now. They know they're going to return to the dust, return to the ground. But amazingly, they don't die immediately. And there's even that glorious glimmer of grace that Dave spoke to you about last week in chapter 3, verse 15. That first simple seed proclamation of the gospel 
that the seed of the woman, someone descended from Eve, is going to crush the serpent's head, crush the devil's head, undo what he's done in making the human race fall into sin. There's a glimmer of hope. And Adam responds to that. Did you notice this? I know Dave mentioned it right at the end last week, I think. There's this response of faith on Adam's part. Verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve. Why? Because she would become the mother of all the living. He believes everything that God's just said. Even as God has been cursing the serpent, these little promises have been woven into the curse and Adam believes the promises and he knows that there is hope. But shame still clings. Their sin is about to lead them to banishment from the garden. We, we had read to us, didn't we, that they, they have to leave the garden. They head out the east of Eden and they can't, back, come, can't come back in ever again because God puts these cherubim, these heavenly creatures, with swords of fire on the gates of Eden so that they cannot come back in and get access to the tree of life. God does this in judgment because it's what he'd warned of, it's what they deserve. But even in this, there's a glimmer of grace, you see? Because if they'd eaten from the tree of life, which God had ordained in some mysterious way would give them ongoing life, if they'd kept access, can you imagine continued access to the tree of life in this state of guilt and condemnation and shame? Imagine living like that forever. Imagine living like that forever. It's called hell. And hell would have begun for them then if they'd had access to the tree of life. But God cast them out. Yes, it's judgment for their sin, but you see there's mercy in it. See what sort of God we worship? Even as he justly judges us because he's holy and we are sinners, there's grace because he's merciful, because he loves fallen human beings. God drives them away from the tree into the hard life of existence outside Eden. Judgment is there, but with mercy in its midst, in its midst, the, the scene is heartrending. But at least there's hope. The hope of verse three fifteen, and the hope, the hope of verse three twenty. But there's still shame. This sense that they were broken, defiled, dishonoured. This desire for God not to look at them. Don't look at me, God. And it's our experience too. Isn't it? That's our experience too. If you haven't really felt it yet, you haven't lived long enough, as I said. This sense of brokenness, ugliness, uh, unworthiness, wanting to hide. This sense of a weight on you, a clinging thing. It's more than just passing embarrassment. It goes to the root of who I feel I am. It's really important to say, while we're thinking about shame, and before we get to God's solution for it, that shame that we've been thinking about and describing so far this morning, it's caused by different things. It comes in different ways. And in broad terms, very broad terms, I'm overgeneralizing here, there's deserved shame and there's undeserved shame. Before we get to God's solution for shame, I think it's really important we say that. There's deserved shame and there's undeserved shame. Deserved shame is what we see here in the passage with Adam and Eve. It's the result of guilt. So it's not that you're feeling guilty for no reason. It's that you're feeling guilty because you're guilty. It's deserved shame. You know, I, um, uh, not long after first moving to Cardiff, I ended up on a speed awareness course for the second time in my life. There's a lot of confession going on this morning, isn't there? 
Um, and one of the things I noticed about that speed awareness course that they tell you a lot about how bad it is if you break the speed limit and how going even two miles an hour over the speed limit, if you hit someone in a pedestrian zone, can make the difference between life and death. And everybody in that room, nobody denied it that I can remember, everybody in that room was guilty of breaking the law when it comes to speed and traffic offences. And as far as I could tell, and I have to be honest and include myself in this, I don't think anybody in that room particularly felt shame. So guilt and shame don't always go together because we can very, do a very good job of masking shame, can't we? But when it comes to this sort of shame that Adam and Eve feel, we should all feel this shame because we're guilty before a holy God. We've spat in his face. We said we don't want to know him. We don't want to live life his way. We want to live life our way. That's deserved shame. I mean, I, I'm thinking about how I didn't feel guilty on that speed awareness course and I should have done. And actually, with hindsight, I do feel guilty because I shouldn't have been going a few miles an hour over the speed limit. Because it is dangerous and it's the law. But imagine the worst crime a human being could commit, which is basically cosmic treason and spitting in the face of a good and loving God. No speeding fine, but rebelling against the good creator. This is the shame that Adam and Eve experience here in Genesis chapter 3. They feel this way because of their sin. They deserve it. They've earned it. And all human beings do. You read the rest of the Bible, that's what it tells you. Because Adam and Eve fell into sin, we are sinners. It's not so much we're sinners because we sin. We commit sins because we're sinners. That's what we are. And we should feel shame before this holy God. We've earned it. Sometimes we quite effectively mask it, as I've mentioned. We avoid it. We displace it, maybe. But deep down, we know it's there. Christians, Christians feel this, the edge of this shame, when they sin again. Or again, is it just me? You do that thing again. And the Bible tells you your trust in Jesus, so it's forgiven. The guilt is gone but yet you still feel this shame. Even when we say sorry and ask for forgiveness, it seems to linger. It's a powerful, deep, horrible thing, this thing called shame. But I need to point out there's another basic form of shame. I've said there's deserved shame. There is also undeserved shame that doesn't arise from true guilt, but from false guilt. For example, shame that's been inflicted upon us. You might feel shame this morning because of the unkindnesses of people towards you in your life, because of the way they think about you, even though you don't deserve the way they think about you. Maybe it's unkindnesses, maybe it's bullying, maybe it's bullying in school or bullying you're experiencing right now, and that gives you this sense of shame. Maybe it's, maybe it's truly abuse. And the, the tragic and ironic thing about abuse is that so often the person who's been abused feels shame for that. I'm standing on the sidelines hearing about this person who's been abused. And they what do you feel shame for? You did nothing wrong. But they're feeling shame. They're feeling, don't look at me. They're feeling unworthy. They're feeling worthless. That's undeserved shame when it's not the result of something that you have done. It's not deserved. There's the misplaced shame of failing to meet expectations. Maybe it's the expectations of society, of your parents, of your, your spouse. You've not done anything wrong, but you just not you don't think you're measuring up and you feel this shame. It's all all this is undeserved shame. 
It's the result of sin in a general sense, yes, because we all live in a fallen world, but it's not the result of a particular sin of yours. So I thought it was important to say that before I went any further. I think you can see from Scripture and just from life. I was reading a great book by Diane Langberg at the moment. She's got a great chapter on, I'll say a great chapter, a penetrating chapter on shame where she explains all this. I'd, I'd recommend it to you. These are the two basic forms of shame. There's the deserved shame before a holy God for our sins against him. But there is also an undeserved shame that we can feel sometimes, even though we've done nothing wrong. And our question this morning, friends, is what do we do with our shame? If you've not experienced it in a powerful way in your life yet, well, the chances are you will. What do you do with it? You can try to mask it. You can try to avoid it. You can try to put it on others and displace it. You can try and invert it and celebrate the thing that makes you feel shame, but it doesn't really drive the shame away. What can you do with your shame? If it's inflicted or misplaced shame, we can certainly and should certainly seek the help of other people who love us and can help us, who will spend time with us to see that this particular and deserved shame is not ours to bear. That's wise, and that can bring a measure of healing. But even if we are able to deal with that inflicted shame, that misplaced shame, that false shame, we will eventually find in us this other, all-too-common species of shame that all of humanity shares in. Shame that's connected to the guilt of our sin. What do we do? Where do we go with our shame? Well, here's where we come to our second point, God's solution to Adam and Eve's shame, and to ours as well. God in his justice doesn't simply ignore their sin and its effects. He is very clear that they're under judgment for what they've done, as, as Dave showed us last week. God doesn't tell Adam and Eve that their shame isn't real. Their shame is rooted in real guilt. And it's a guilt we all share. Read Romans 5, for example, and you'll, you'll read there that A person is either in Adam and therefore guilty for Adam's sin and the shame that goes with that or they're in Christ and they've been set free from it. All humanity shares in the sin and the shame of Adam and Eve. But wonderfully, God does not leave them hopeless in their guilt and shame. This is why I love God. Because he acts in love And mercy, so contrary to what we would do if it was down to us, right? He acts in love and mercy to ease the pain of their shame and to give hope of its eventual eradication. Listen to these words. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. They've just spat in his face. And he's about to banish them from the garden to keep them away from the the tree of life. And because he must judge their sin. And even as all this is happening, he not only makes promises and says things, he does something. This is the first act of tailoring in scripture. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. This is the God, the true God, the God of the Bible, who when we've sinned and we're full of shame, he comes after us. This is the the father in the story, the prodigal son, who runs to the sinner. This is the shepherd who tracks down wandering sheep and heals them. This is what our God is like. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. Those words would have been packed full of meaning to Moses and the Israelites. 
Though the words clothed and garments sound fairly innocuous to us, maybe in our English translation, but in the writings of Moses in the Old Testament, they are words clothed and garments that are used again and again for the priests and for the high priest in particular. And Israelites' ears would have pricked up at this, that Adam and Eve were clothed by God. And we saw previously how Eden was a temple where they were in the glorious presence of God, serving him as priests to spread his glory to the earth. And they've lost that. They've messed up their priesthood. And yet, even as they messed it up, God is clothing them. And the words used for clothing are the words used in the rest of the writings of Moses for the garments of the priests. Adam and Eve have messed up their priesthood They're being pushed out of the holy place of the garden, but there is a way back. There is a reinstatement to their priestly calling and a way back into the presence of God. How? We might say if you hear last week, well, the how is Genesis 3, verse 15. The descendant of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Yeah, but how is he going to crush the serpent's head? The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Guess where else the word skin comes up in the Old Testament? In the writings of Moses, when speaking of the sacrifices that the people would offer to God to deal with their sin. The skin of sacrifice. The Israelites would have, of Moses' day would have recognized in this passage that word skin and what it meant. An animal has clearly died here. Not just to provide garments to cover up their embarrassment and their shame, But an animal has been killed here as the first ever sacrifice. An animal died so their shame could be covered. The Old Testament sacrifices, when you read through the early part of your Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrifices dealt temporarily and symbolically with the people's guilt. The sacrifice, whether it was a lamb or a goat or a a calf, the sacrifice died instead of the sinner. But the thing about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, just like the garments of skin here, is that it pointed beyond itself to a greater sacrifice that would deal fully and finally and wonderfully with sin's guilt and shame. This is pointing forward, you see, to the sacrificial system. And the sacrificial system is pointing forward to the great sacrifice. You know the one I'm talking about, right? The Son of God come as a human being, hung on a cross outside Jerusalem to suffer and bleed and die to deal with our guilt and our shame. Where can we go with our shame? Their garments show us. We can go to the cross. We can flee to the cross. I used that phrase in uh, chatting through with Dave this week. Um, that I was going to say about fleeing to the cross. And as he often does, he, he said, yeah, but okay, what does that mean? Stop using jargon, Matt. What does it mean, fleeing to the cross? It means that you hear from God's word that Jesus, the Son of God, died on the cross for you. You picture that in your mind's eye and you say, I believe it, Lord Jesus, that you did that for me. And in faith and in prayer, you go to him and you tell him that. That's what it means to flee to Jesus and trust in his death on the cross. Because that cross is the place where the guilt of our sin is dealt with the place where our lovely Jesus took the guilt and punishment of our sin, but also the shame of our sin. Do you know the old hymn? It's got a line that goes like this. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, 
Hallelujah, what a saviour. Amen. The gospel, you see, is not, I can't emphasize this enough because you'll hear it in some places, the gospel is not, you rock. So when you feel shame, just ignore it. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's an inversion of the gospel. The gospel is, you don't rock. You're a sinner and a rebel against God and you deserve condemnation. You deserve the shame you feel. But the Son of God has died to take away your guilt and to bear your shame because he loves you so much. That's the gospel. It's your guilt. It's your shame. But God has acted to take it away. Not just with the skins of an animal in the Garden of Eden, but with the death of his precious son. The source of your shame is dealt with if you believe in Jesus. Because Jesus paid for it. He experienced shame so that you no longer have to. The writer to the Hebrews in Hebrews 12 talks about Jesus scorning the shame. It's like he went to the cross saying, I know I'm going to suffer shame, but I don't care because I love them. In the Gospels, for example, Mark 15, you can read about the terrible things that happened to Jesus on the cross as they mocked him and spat on him. And he was flogged before being hung on the cross. And he was jeered and made fun of as he died for us. He didn't just bear punishment, he bore shame. And it's yours, and my shame, that he took away when he hung on the cross. You know that if you believe in him. That feeling and experience of shame that you have because of your sin, Christian, it may take time to fade. It may take time for the implications of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit to, to be at work in your life deeply and so that shame starts to fade. But fade it can because the guilt it's connected to is gone if you're a Christian. And the cross is the place to see that. The place where he shows you what he has done to bear away your guilt and your shame. He did not only deal with your sin at the cross, Christian, and neglect to carry away the shame and said, yeah, you've got to carry on with the shame. Sorry, no, he took your guilt and he took your shame. He's a complete savior. So maybe right now you're thinking, okay, Matt, but at the start you said that it's possible to have undeserved shame. You know, that false guilt, which I'm feeling shame. And I know that this particular thing I'm feeling shame over isn't because of something I've done, some particular sin I've committed. It's just because of life, because of circumstances, because of unkindness, because of abuse. I'm feeling shame for that reason. What do I do with that shame? What about the guilt I experience because of that stuff that's been inflicted on me? Ah, do you know what? The cross is still the place to go. The cross is still the place to go. Because when you... Flee to the cross by faith and in prayer and you are trusting with Jesus. You meet with a saviour who wants not only to save you from the guilt of your sin, but also to lift up your head. The Lord who wants to transform you into ever increasing degrees of glory, not ever decreasing glory, uh, degrees of shame. The Jesus who wants to set you free from all hurt and shame. The God who heals you with his own wounds in the person of his son. The Jesus who is the righteous judge and tells you that the wrongs done against you will be reckoned with. They will be reckoned with. Either because the wrongdoer will ultimately one day trust Jesus and so know that that wrong has been dealt with at the cross. Or because that wrong against you will be judged on the day of judgment when Jesus returns. The cross is still the place to go. God may have given you various people in your life. Friends, counsellors, maybe a professional that you can speak to. 
who can help you as you seek to be free of this undeserved shame. We mustn't neglect those helps, but the ultimate place to know that shame is lifted is there at the cross of Calvary where Jesus died and showed his love for you. The place of ultimate sacrifice God provided to cover your shame. The place where the Father shows us how massively loved we are. Do you still, Christian, do you still feel broken, unworthy, ashamed? Jesus loved you and loves you. And Jesus died for you to make you worthy in the Father's sight. You might say, yes, I know that's true. I know he loved me. I know he died for me. I know he took my guilt. I've trusted him. And then, Matt, you don't know what I've done since. Well, my answer doesn't change. He loved you and he died for you and he paid for your every sin, past, present and future. And you stand clothed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's God's truth. So just come and and come to the cross if you've never trusted Jesus before and never known your guilt and your shame dealt with. Come in faith to Jesus. You can do it now, sat where you are in the the seat right now, just, just praying to Jesus, Lord Jesus, I believe this is who you are. This is what you've done. I believe in you and I trust in you to take away my guilt and shame. That's what Adam did. That's why he named Eve, Eve, because he believed that life would come from her. That's what you see in verse 20. He believed God's promises. That's what you have to do. That's all you can do. Trust in God's promises and know that the guilt of your sin is taken away. And with that, it's shame and all shame. Come to him this morning with your guilt and your shame. The only one who can take them away. Just come. And tell him you believe and trust. And ask his spirit to minister that truth to your heart. And I just read to you as I close some of my favorite words. I know I say that regularly, but this is really true. Uh, some of my favorite words in the Bible from Zephaniah chapter 3. I know I've quoted at least one of these verses in this place before. This is God through the prophet Zephaniah speaking to the people. He's, he's saying to them, look, judgment is going to have to come because of the sins of the nations and your sins as well. Judgment is going to have to come. But beyond that, he speaks of the day of the Lord. In other words, what he's going to do through Jesus. And he says these things to his people who believe his word. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel, be glad and rejoice with all your heart. Daughter Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away your punishment. How's he going to do that? He's going to do that through the cross. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. Christian, This is how he sees and feels about you because of Jesus. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. How do you know that's true? Because he died on the cross for you. He rejoices over the Christian with singing. Not because you deserve it, but because of what he's done. And in Jesus, he delights in you. Let me carry on. Just another couple of verses and I'll pray. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach to you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. See, where they felt shame, God said, no, I'm going to honor you. Why? Because you've made yourself honorable? No, because of what I have done 
and I am going to do through the cross of Jesus. This is how God feels about you in Christ. If you don't know him this morning, flee to him in faith and trust him. Let's pray. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned you stood. Sealed my pardon with your blood. Hallelujah, Jesus. What a saviour you are. Amen.